0: Hey everybody, welcome, welcome here to Show One Twenty-One on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here, as always from the from the Baltics. Uh, joined here by my co-hosts today. We have Alec Harris uh, from Eastern US. Alec, how's it going?
1: Hello, good morning. Always a pleasure.
0: Likewise, likewise. Nice to see you. And we also have Michelle Keto Miner, uh, founder of Nodle, joining us from France. Michelle, what's going on?
2: Hey, how are you doing? good to be here
0: very good man very good and uh, today we're going to introduce our special guest uh, jimmy morgan this is a special uh intro here uh, never have i had such a nice eloquent intro actually sent to me beforehand so i'm going to read it here we go uh legendary american sport executive branch ricky once said things worthwhile generally don't just happen luck is a fact but should not be a factor Good luck is what is left over after intelligence and effort have combined at their best. Luck is the residue of design." So with that, uh, Jimmy Morgan, who is not entirely convinced that it hasn't been the luck of the Irish that allowed him to witness firsthand the evolution of the financial crypto markets as the general counsel of three crypto financial powerhouses, Genesis, BitGo, and now Falcon X, Jimmy feels a bit like the Forrest Gump of crypto, as he has a knack for being in interesting places at interesting times. Love that intro, Jimmy. Welcome to the show. How you doing?
3: Thank you, guys. I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, of the show, and uh, honored and happy to be to be part. And uh, looking forward to an interesting conversation.
0: You feel a little bit of um, luck of the Irish in you most days.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's um. I would love to say that I, I was a, this great visionary, and when I made the jump from TradFi to crypto, that I had, you know, could foresee that it was going to be this huge, uh, booming kind of uh, industry with with uh, a lot of promise. Um, but that really wasn't true. I I, I kind of made a bet on on joining the team at Genesis and and uh, joining a bunch of smart people there, people that I that I. Uh, look forward to working with and being co- becoming colleagues with. And I think accidentally, uh, you know, it ended up that crypto did uh, emerge as as the force we see it today. I, I think, for instance, like Jan 2015, when I joined Genesis, um, the crypto price, if we want to, Bitcoin price, if we want to use that as like a, a marker, it had fallen considerably. I think the high was 2000, let's say around the, um, um, the Mount Gox uh, hack and it tumbled down it was about like $200 a coin. So very much like when I made the the move into crypto, it wasn't it wasn't entirely uh certain that it was it was going to survive. Like it was still potentially, you know, blow up in flames. Um, so my bet was really with the the team uh at they were Second Market at the time. We we later rebranded to Genesis. But uh they were just an amazing group of guys and I figured that's what I, you know, if, if it does blow up and go to zero, well, I, I want to be in a position where I'm surrounded with, you know, smart people that we would collectively think like, okay, what's, what's the next adventure?
0: We'll talk a lot of markets and uh, price and everything there, I think. But uh, before we get to that, I know you have a legal background and I want to hear a little bit about your origin story. But uh, just tell me, man, do we need more lawyers in crypto? <laughs>
3: Well, I think it was Shakespeare uh, who said something to the effect of, "Like the world needs less lawyers." Um, I think we need we need smart lawyers. We need lawyers that are open minded and are willing to embrace uh, a new world. And that in this new world, there are new rules and new dynamics at play. And that's, I think, just even beyond you know the legal profession. I think that's you know anyone who's deciding to to come from you know, a a traditional background and get into crypto that like, I think there's a, there's a mistake of, of, of trying to rebuild the world they're coming from in this new world and, and, and rejecting the world that exists now and saying like, Oh, you guys, you didn't do this right. i come from a traditional world. This is how you should have done it and try to try to rebuild it. I think you need to come with a, a level of like respect for what has already been built and to try to understand uh, crypto on its own terms and not necessarily trying to remake it from from a, a previous model.
0: Okay, with that, let's go into your origin story a little bit. I'll jumpstart with one question. I know you worked at the uh, NYSC Regulation uh, Department of Surveillance and you said on a little intro to us, uh, debrief to us before the show, you said that you were like uh, the eye in the sky at casinos. That was literally what you're doing. So just tell us a little bit what you mean by that if you were actually the eye in the sky. Of the financial markets at the NYSE.
3: for sure. Yeah, so the um, NYC is a, a really cool, uh, unique place because uh, it still has a trading floor, and there's not many left. I mean, that's a it's a um, uh, it continues to kind of to keep that tradition. Um, so there's manual based floor trading, but they were also integrating at the time uh, and becoming more automated and more systems and. Uh, the Department of, Mar- of Market Surveillance had typically been like a, a physical job where you had uh, members of regulation that were on the floor and that were literally overseeing trading as it was happening. But as the model moved from less of a manual-based trading into more automated with systems, then market surveillance had to kind of keep, keep uh, pace with that as well, and they started to develop more electronic surveillances. So, uh, my group, we, we weren't on the trading floor every day, although it was a place I'd love to go and visit. It had such a, such a cool energy that it's kind of hard to, to replicate. Uh, my group, we actually were you know, up in offices and we ran you know, uh, um, and designed surveillances to capture like, more of the electronic activity.
0: With that though, like, was it was it really was there any sort of like Orwellian thing where like you can't tell us, but you know, you actually had a backdoor to like all of the trading platforms and dark market exchanges?
3: Not at all. No, it was um, the analogy that I came up with was is from the movie Casino. I'm a big fan. It's a great movie, and there's a scene in it where they talk about like how how casinos are regulated they talk about there's a series of supervisor who's watching the dealer and then a the pit boss who watches the supervisor and then above it all is the eye in the sky and uh when I graduated law school and I took this job at market surveillance and I had to explain it to my friends like hey what am I doing what are, what is it that we do and um you know I borrowed upon uh the movie casino to kind of explain it so nothing nothing ominous nothing nefarious it, it was just my my attempt to uh use a, a movie to probably jazz up what I was doing in, in, in reality.
1: If we can rail on TradFi markets for a sec since the topic is open, but so you were watching the activity in, in uh, these trading floors and the the market, you know, the crypto market, right, gets painted fairly or unfairly as like very scammy and full of, you know, market manipulation and, uh, you know, price disparity and dislocation across regions, you, know, you name it, right? We've been accused of everything, but it's not like crypto invented market manipulation. And it's not like the bad actors, you know, all of a sudden just arrived at crypto, right? This has been going on in finance for a while. And so what what was it like having a view on that in the TradFi world and then coming over and seeing the crypto version of it?
3: My take on it is bad actors, uh, people who want to manipulate markets, that's a, a, a mark on the specific actor, not necessarily the marketplace. Um, for instance, you know, all of the 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 traditional markets have been have found themselves in situations where there's been market manipulation and there's been nefarious activity. Yet nobody says like these markets are illegitimate. So the fact that, for instance, you look at the DeFi markets and is there a bubble going on in DeFi? It's it's very possible. Uh, will that kind of uh, will that bubble burst and blow up? It's very possible, probably likely. Um, but does that mean that the mark that DeFi markets in of itself are illegitimate because there was a bubble? I would say no, because all of the markets, the tradFi markets that we would consider to be fully legit, they themselves are subject to bubbles and subject to to, to bad actors coming in and uh, you know engaging in market manipulation and all other types of abusive practices.
1: Did you find that there was a correlation between the type of Manipulation that you would see in traditional finance world and then in crypto, or was it a whole new game when you came over to the other side?
3: Crossing over into crypto, uh, the, the immediate concern from, from a regulatory perspective was AML. Um, you know, the thought that, hey, look, th- this is a tool uh, that the bad guys are going to use uh, to confiscate their, their activities. And, you know, this is going to be a money laundering haven. And I think, you know, that, that was uh, an idea that was prominent in the mind of regulators. But I think once they start to peel back uh, the, the layers of, of initial skepticism, uh, they can realize that, in fact, uh, crypto offers tools that makes it actually pretty terrible for you to use as a, as a, uh, a tool of, of money laundering. I mean, if you think about it, uh, blockchain, public immutable it's there forever. Um, Is that really the best uh, way that you want to um, obfuscate like your activities? Um, And, you know, we have the forensics tools nowadays that can really help put all the pieces together and tie, tie transactions back. And it seems like, you know, what was the fear of the regulator? Like, Hey, this is going to be used to, to uh, promote money laundering. Actually it offers great tools to, to counter to counter that fear. And if you look at like the federal, you know, uh, the Fed uh, wire system, it has no transparency, no visibility, you know, it, it, from a public perspective, it's much harder to kind of to trace those things back. Whereas uh, on a public blockchain, I think it, it offers great promise in terms of addressing the fear that the regulators had, uh, you know, in, in early days. I mean, and it still, I think, to, to this day, there's still a perception that like, uh, anything crypto is really high uh, AML risk.
1: Yeah, I think we'll probably have that optic for a while. First of all, I want to back up. Just a quick shout out to our mutual friends, Uri and B for you know linking us up and making sure that we knew each other. So uh, if we get them listening, thank you guys both for introducing us to Jimmy. Um, but so being in regulated markets, right, and all the companies that you've worked for in the crypto world, you obviously had to lean on, you know, the forensics tools, right? Like that's kind of how you, how you pass muster with the regulators, uh, or I would assume that's a component of it. But, you know, as a Bitcoiner and like, obviously as a, a true believer in the space and the cause, right, there's, there's some issues with how those companies operate because they're, they're somewhat undermining some of the core principles uh, of, you know, uh and peer-to-peer
3: transactions.
1: So, you know, going into work, do you are you like, what's it feel like being on both sides of that coin?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you're raising probably an issue that's you know I know is near and dear to your heart is privacy, um, and the way that privacy is viewed, it's it's it, it's in the eye of the beholder. So, like a, for a regulator who wants transparency and wants to understand everything, privacy is, is like a negative thing. It's, you, you know it's it's viewed with skepticism. It's like, what are you hiding? Well, it's, you're not hiding anything. You have a, a right to remain private, and, and um, like to take it into the uh, to make it more real. Um, you have certain cryptocurrencies that have privacy enhanced features. You can shield transactions. Now, a regular might say, "Oh, this is this is this is used for nefarious purposes." Like, why would you shield a transaction? And I would, you know, and I have had this conversation and I've said, no, you could, you could use it for extremely legitimate purposes. Like, and I, we raise as an example, uh, you know, Genesis, we, we, um, early on, uh, we purchased a large block of Bitcoin that had been seized from the marshal's office. And we had no ability to move that to a shielded address and to kind of shield that transaction. It didn't exist, uh, you know, for Bitcoin protocol, but had that been a, a crypto where <clears throat> such privacy enhancements some privacy features are were feasible it would have been totally legitimate of us to want to you know to to protect where the the address that we were moving it to because uh you know anytime you're 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 leaking out information like that you're increasing yourself as like an attack vector for for people that may want to come and and, and take that Bitcoin or take that crypto from you. So I think it's all not, its all like any technology depends upon how it's used. Like, uh, you know, um, for instance, like you could take the uh, example of, of a knife, right? I could take the knife and I can stab somebody with it and kill them. And obviously it's it's horrible and, and that's not a good use of the knife, but I can use a knife to cut steak and eat my food. So it really depends upon... Like what you use it, it's not inherently good or bad. It's it's how it's used, and that's how I view privacy. Um, it's not inherently good or bad. It's depending upon its use.
0: So, do you think the SEC and the CFTC agree with you?
3: Um, no, I mean they have a different mandate. They want fair and orderly markets. They want transparency. So, I think you know they're they're more apt to look at uh, something like privacy with with a, a, a bit more of skepticism but that's that's them doing their job they're here to you know to to protect markets and to uh, make them transparent and fair and orderly so um, for them you know privacy isn't their number one kind of concern and in fact privacy can be a roadblock to what their mandate is so of course they're going to look at it differently than, than uh, you know uh, someone who's more on the, the libertarian streak of, of, of life
0: It's the topic of the day and crypto and Bitcoin in particular because you know it's becoming easier I think by the day to uh, shield coins as you say or just to you know anonymize where your coins have came from and where they might go and um, as we've seen with some of these laws that are coming out of Switzerland even like uh, a lot of the regulators really are against uh, this type of even uh, non-custodial behavior uh, that's above a certain threshold now. They're really trying to, which I, I don't think is a surprise to anybody at the end of the day who you know, knows these markets and is following it. But you know, how do you rectify that? Because uh, obviously we all love these distributed uh, technologies and markets for what they are, but regulators are really going to try to you know, fit that square peg in the round hole. When it comes to crypto regulation,
3: yeah, absolutely. I think you kind of you can think about it in a broader terms where it's like centralized versus decentralized. And for from the regulator perspective, I think they understand and they like centralized because it's it's one person that they can uh, uh, hold accountable versus like a decentralized model. The regulators kind of a little bit of an existential question of like, okay, who is it that we're regulating if it's decentralized? It doesn't fit quite as as uh, um, neatly and tightly into like a a, a a regulatory framework if you don't know who it is that you're regulating in the, in the first place.
1: Since you brought up decentralized versus centralized, let's just go off on that vector. Um, so, you know, in some of our chats leading up to today, you brought up, you know, some longstanding interest in the second law of thermodynamics and you know, trending away from centrality and, and towards, you know, entropy. Uh, and obviously that's, that's been the arc of your career too. So do you want to expound on that a little more?
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, and it was a whole process. It took me a while to kind of um, reach this understanding that I have today. Um, when I first got into to, to crypto, you know, to me it was easy to think about crypto as just a new asset class and you know that it, it leads to the type of thinking that i spoke about earlier where it's like if it's a, a just an asset class like let's rebuild the market structure from the markets that we know um and build that around this new asset class and that had been my my mental understanding of of crypto for a while um but through the influence of you know we mentioned our our common friend Uri, he'd been you know telling me for years about the second law of thermodynamics and I hadn't quite fully put it all together uh, until recently. I read a book from uh, Brian Green. He wrote a book called uh, Until the End of Time. And he did a very elegant job of explaining the second law of thermodynamics. And again, this is preface of coming from somebody who's, who never took uh, even physics high school. And I never even took calculus in high school. So uh, for me to to get into the hearts of like the mathematics behind it all, um, I'm probably not the best person, but I do understand and have a, a grasp of the concept. And basically, as my understanding would go, that it's uh, central things things that start off in a centralized fashion. It's inevitable that they end up uh, entropy occurs, they end up decaying, and and you end up with more of a of a decentralized model. And this is something that we've you know we've seen um, throughout history. Like any centralized empire, given enough time frame is going to crumble and to to disintegrate and even further back, like in, in, uh, uh, biblical tales, right. We have the the story of, uh, the tower of Babel, which can also represent the, the same, the same concept of, of things that start off in a centralized manner, end up getting, uh, getting, you know, broken apart and destroyed. And, um, that's, that changed my mind from looking at, um, Crypto as just sort of a, a new asset class, into actually looking at it as like a, a disruptive force, um, and for me, it really it's really come full to full appreciation with the emergence of of DeFi. Um, for me, it was like looking at uh, at crypto and thinking about it as like, okay, this is a cool a cool asset class uh, that was gifted to the world by Satoshi. Um, and it's super cool. That we can we can um, transfer at this asset in, in a way that's that's unique. It's decentralized. Um, but to me, and this is going to go against like the Bitcoin maximalists out there. It was like, it's cool. It's a, a store of value that I can hold. But I can hold cash, and I can put that under my mattress, and I can hold crypto, and that's cool. But what can I do with it? And to me, was when the emergence of DeFi, uh, where now there's an ability to to take my crypto and put it to work in cool and interesting ways, uh, and in, in ways that is disintermediating uh, many of the financial inter- intermediaries uh, is super promising, super interesting, and it's it sort of made me think that like betting on crypto is is aligning yourself with the. Uh, second law of thermodynamics, and I think that's going to, you know, ultimately be on the on the the right side of uh, of history.
0: Yeah, I said the same thing with our interview with Uri. Is the financial comparison of the second law of thermodynamics is the saying all stocks eventually go to zero? A lot of people don't think about it that way, but uh, that's that's the truth.
3: Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I also think about it like. You know, uh, in, in crypto, like we're not doing, we're, it's not that we're doing God's work. We're doing the work of, of physics and, and, and mathematics in, uh, to a larger extent. Um, but then, oddly, you know, some, there's people out there that you use the second law of thermodynamics to support the existence of God. So, perhaps in a roundabout way, Maybe we are doing God's work, and maybe we actually do have a, a better claim than than uh, Lloyd Blankfein uh, famously made uh, in, in his days.
1: Wait, did he claim to be doing God's work? Yeah. Oh man,
0: he's claimed a lot of things, <laughs> but at least he wasn't as bearish on Bitcoin as uh, as Diamond, right?
3: Yeah, you know, it's um uh not altogether surprising that the there's a an initial skepticism, especially if, if you if you think about again pointing to the world of DeFi. Uh, where there is tremendous potential that there, it's going to change uh, uh, greatly the the financial markets. Where we know, all, you know, we conceivably can render mute the role of of banks and custodians, market makers, exchanges, lending desks, uh, and all the stuff that like the the incumbents uh, have made tremendous amounts uh, of their fortune on. It's probably not surprising that uh, initially there's some skepticism and, and um, you know optimism. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, opposition against uh, uh, cryptocurrency. Let's go like maybe one rung
1: deeper, right? Which is that uh, sometimes when humans lose faith in decentralized structures or when there's like threats or perceived threats, right? The tendency is to you know cling back towards centrality and. You know, like the feudal states in medieval times is a good example of it, right? Like in in order to defend yourselves at the time, like, right, you had to like coalesce around, you know, some central lord, right, and agree to fight on behalf of that territory. Uh, And then you see those get disbanded. And so I'm wondering about the arc here, right? So this move from TradFi to, to crypto to DeFi, this occurred over a very short period of time. But, you know, the second law of thermodynamics is talking about millennia. Uh, and so do we, because of the, the rapid pace of innovation that we're seeing right now in all of these markets, and not necessarily just markets and the tech too, the underlying tech the protocol development, uh, do we potentially see a knee jerk reaction like it was too fast? And so people get scared and, you know, they're worried about their money. And so they rush back into traditional banking. They, they look to the central bank. You know, they look to the federal government's. Uh, and what's the potential for that? And I think we have like some generational trends that are on our side here, right? Because, you know, the adoption of crypto obviously trends toward the younger generations. And so by the time there's a zoomer that's the president, right, uh, the likelihood of these knee jerk reactions and overreaches and, you know, some octogenarian issuing an executive order that doesn't understand, you know, Nakamoto consensus is less likely. Um, but you're much closer to it, right? So, so what do you think? Like, is this second law of thermodynamics or is this just a blip on, on the radar?
3: Um, I think it's, I think it is, uh, more than a blip on the radar. Uh, I think it's, it's shown itself to have some, uh, staying power, but to your point about like, uh, overreacting, it it reminds me some, uh, a regulator once told me and said, Hey, you know, you guys in the crypto industry need to to come together and start to put together some, some rules and some governance around how you, the actors and the participants are going to, are going to behave because if not, uh, you're going to leave it to, to us and the politicians. And there, if there's anything that the politicians do, they do two things really well, which is absolutely nothing or completely overreact. And it's like, if you don't want either, nobody wants either of those. Like let's, let's try to get a, uh, a happy medium it's it's incumbent upon the participants to to start working together to to uh address some of the concerns that that uh, are out there
0: was that a recent conversation or a conversation from long ago
3: no that's probably i mean that's that was in 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 my in my life uh in crypto so i think it's probably so so hard to tell I, I don't know what the right um the right multiplier on crypt- crypto years is. I, it, I don't know if it's like uh, it's okay. just, dog years.
0: If, we've, <laughs> if you think we've improved from that point, I don't know, approaching it the right way, at least from the U.S. regulatory perspective.
3: Yeah, I think the, 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 the U.S. regulators are, um, are taking a, a, a deliberate approach. Um, they don't, I think worse than, than, than no action is they don't want to take the wrong action. So I think that's why they've been very, very slow with, with coming out with, uh, you know, a, a, a clear set of rules because they don't want those rules to, in effect, be worse than the current situation.
0: The thing that passed in, in the fall through the House, actually, I actually haven't heard the latest on that, but the, uh, the brokerage sort of amendments where basically everyone's a broker, miners a broker, and everybody's got a KYC everybody. Any thoughts on how that's going?
3: Yeah, I mean, I guess from, from you know, the, the companies that I've worked for, uh, we've all either been under some level of, of already regulation, or if not, we've been behaving as if, you know, to the standard of, of regulation. So things like uh, KYC, things like, uh, you know, onboarding of customers and uh, doing your transaction monitoring and all of that, from the, the class of, of companies that that I've always worked for in crypto, it's less of an issue because we've we've already have these things in place. Uh, that being said, um, you know crypto is a it's a wide tent, and you know it, it may affect uh, other companies or other participants differently. But from my side of the house, like it's something that that uh, we've already been doing, and something that you know we we think is ultimately a could be could yield uh, some positive benefits if if um, regulation is what's necessary to to deepen the participation of crypto into perhaps some institutions that are that are still on the sidelines that you know these are positive developments regulatory clarity are positive even if you don't necessarily like the the outcome per se at least dealing with a, a clearer set of rules is is, uh, is a is a benefit about
2: trying to regulate DeFi, don't you think that if it's truly decentralized, it can't be regulated?
3: Yeah, I think it's a it's a really interesting question, uh, and I think the big the 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 big uh, qualifier is if, right? So we we've, we've got a spectrum within the DeFi world where not everybody is equally as decentralized, um, and I think if you truly are decentralized, it, yeah, it's going to be. Uh, a hard argument for a regulator to, to try to um, assert their jurisdiction over you. But I don't think everybody is, is at that point yet. I mean, I don't know what that, that point is. I mean, is it like burning your admin keys if you're, if you're running a protocol, like is that, uh, have you hit like full decentralization when you've hit that mark or are you decentralized if you have like a DAO governance um, I don't know. I think we're 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 going to see it play out. I think um, the regulatory uh, scrutiny of DeFi, I think, uh, is not going to come as a surprise. I think uh, you know the actors in the space are are aware and are prepared, um, and it's going to be really interesting because when when I compare it to like a, a different phase of crypto, like when we went through ICO mania, um, many of those projects they didn't consult with lawyers. They didn't. They were just a team with a white paper that went out and raised a bunch uh, of ETH with an ERC-20. Um, and I think they didn't really take uh, steps to protect themselves or they didn't, they didn't take advantage of proper legal analysis that would have protected them. So I think when the regulators came to sweep them up, uh, a lot of them were easy targets and they could kind of just roll. But I think the the DeFi community, there are some really really talented, very smart GCs, and these uh, protocols are are well funded. And I think they're not going to be an, an easy role for uh, for the uh, regulators to come in. Um, but at the end of the day, we don't we don't know how it's going to end up. Uh, there's a lot of like you know First Amendment arguments about free speech and and uh, open source publishing of code and protocol, and that shouldn't be regulated. Um, we're, we're going to see, you know, as the years and days and years, uh, roll on how, how these arguments play out and, and, and hold up. I'm rooting for the DeFi uh, camp for sure. Like, again, I think there's, there's really talented, uh, legal, uh, minds that have, uh, uh, put work into, to, um, really develop what their arguments are again, much different than like the ICO, uh, Days of, of uh, 2018. Yeah, I, I guess many
2: of them are distributed at best, and and a few are truly decentralized. We'll see how it goes.
3: One thing for me that that like um, that I see as like a um, an an area of like attack vector for the DeFi protocols is like the governance tokens. To me, I'm like the governance token almost looks in in a sense like an equity shareholder, you get to vote on propositions. And, and if there is any, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's even more of a, of an argument. If there's like a dividend like uh, stream that that comes from holding the token, but it's like, man, I I wish, I wish that in my mind, if if you said, Jimmy, we want, we want you to produce uh, a DeFi protocol. um, I would say, all right, first thing we're going to do is we're not going to go with a governance token. Now that raises, other dilemmas, like how is your protocol going to gain traction if you don't have this this governance token? Um, but to me, that's like the trade off that I would make, where where uh, I'd, I'd close a loop that could potentially be there um, for a regulator to to kind of come in and, and assert jurisdiction.
2: I mean, the the best example of what someone can do to be totally decentralized and and legally. Free of any obligations is Bitcoin with Satoshi, who disappeared.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and and just the way that the way that um, Bitcoin was rolled out from the beginning uh, with proof of work, where there was no, you know, there was no like pre seed, there was none, nothing yeah. of that nature. It just rolled out, and you you um, uh, you know mined Bitcoin, and that's how you got it. And then the secondary market sort of developed after the fact, like. Brilliant. And just, yeah, the amazing that uh, Satoshi also chose to go the route of just, you know, creating this thing, stepping back and, and sort of like letting letting it run wild in the world and, and not claiming to be, you know, the, the inventor and in this high profile approach, uh, I think is, is really amazing. But then again, it could. There, there is a, a a happy medium approach where you have like Vitalik and Ethereum, right? Where he's he's the founder of it. He has a a, a public profile. He's he's known. I think his uh, he lends in the early days, like the the perception of of how talented and how special of an individual he he was and is, lent credibility to the the protocol. So. Um, and now I think it, it's uh, it's grown beyond, you know, Vitalik's protocol because of, of the things that have been built on top of Ethereum. So I think there is a way that you could have, you know, someone who is a public founder of a protocol, but it not necessarily encumbered the protocol. Uh,
1: I mean, I, I get. So the thing, though, is that people watch that person and they make inferences about the project based on that person. Right, so Vitalik flies to Moscow and meets with Putin. Right, so then we make a bunch of inferences about Ethereum. Uh, you know, so the I, I see what you're. You know, having a great steward for your project is meaningful. I get that, but I think you know you can be encumbered by human foibles at the same time.
3: Yeah, no, I mean it's it's true. Like anything, there's there's a, a plus and, and, and a minus to to all the approaches, right. Um, what were
0: some of your ideas when you said Jimmy that you if you could create a DeFi protocol you would not use a governance token? What were some of the things you were thinking about the trade-offs there?
3: Yeah, so my I mean if you just this is just me spitballing and a product of just my thought on the matter. Um not any uh, not claiming at all to have a monopoly on this is the best way to do it or the only way, but this would be my way. Um I think I would I would want to have uh, give up uh, the DAO concept and have a centralized uh, team that develops the protocol. Um, because the the reason why I would say that is operationally, I would, uh, I'd want the efficiency of having a centralized team uh, to push out uh code. Uh, then I would release the code, have the code be open sourced and, um, Anybody can use it, and maybe maybe what we would do is have a um, a function sort of like um, how uh, um, Uniswap works, where it's like a portion of, of usage of the protocol goes back to the the development team. Um, that's sort of how I would would frame it. and then I wouldn't have a governance token. But again, there's pluses and minuses with everything, like I said, and not having a governance token kind of can hamper a project and. In the the gaining traction and and the tokenomics of of a, of a project. Also, how do you pay for your econo- How do you pay your developer team if you don't have like a, a a token behind it? So there's there's logistical problems with my approach. It's it's not uh, without its you know own problems. But I try to solve for like legal regulatory problems and uh, you know partner up with somebody who can solve for the other problems about oh yeah how do we technically build this and how do we, you know all the other elements of of making a successful project.
0: Time will probably tell how this thing's gonna shake out. I mean I don't wait in this space too much, but I do recall the SEC made some guidance, one of their initial guidance about all this token stuff and ICOs and all that, like the nature of these tokens. They said some statement I believe that like had Ethereum happened sort of under their watch or something, they would have said that would have been like a security. Like they would have classified that as a security. So
3: yeah, for sure. There, there's a there's a famous speech, uh, the Hinman speech, which um sort of the industry viewed as like, okay, it appears that the SEC is, is green lighting Ethereum uh as not a security. Um but if you actually read the speech or the, the transcript of it, um there's a an important qualification um where Uh, Director Haman said, "Like as it exists now, Ethereum is not a security." It kind of left open the door about, well, when it first came to being, it could have been a security. And uh, what in in my mind is like the 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 kind of uh, the guidance means that you could it it opened up this idea that you could start your life off as a uh, as a security, uh, as a caterpillar. But if you enter in the cocoon of sufficient decentralization, you, can, you might be able to come out the other end as a butterfly and no longer a security.
1: <laughs> if you can survive that transition.
3: Yeah. Now, the question is, like, what is sufficient decentralization? To me, it sounds very much like a, a subjective test we can ask probably a hundred people like to find sufficient decentralization you'll get a hundred different answers um, so to me I, I would love to, for there to be some further development on like okay what is a, uh, an objective test that we can apply to determine whether something is sufficiently decentralized now of course sometimes like on the other the other, uh, the other side of, of the of the coin, it's like, well, if we come up with a, a, a test, objective test, then people are just going to game the system and just hit those markers. And then they're saying, Hey, we're not a security. So it's, it almost reminds me a little bit of like uh, law school when your professors play hide the ball and they kind of want you to struggle. They don't want to give you um, enough factors to kind of, to, to come up with a clear and concise analysis. They want to see how you do it. And uh, a little bit of that could be, could be going on, but uh, the concept of, of, of sufficient decentralization um, is interesting, and I'd love to see that become more um, concrete and maybe a little less subjective.
1: I think the general consensus in amongst like the political class and the financial services industries, not just in the U.S. but you know in most countries, is that maybe there's money to be made in crypto, but there's a lot of risk here. We're not sure we can control it. And we've seen all sorts of reactions, you know, from the Chinese reactions to the U S reactions and um, everything in between. Do you think there's an argument that, uh, and we may see this play out in El Salvador and elsewhere that a central authority that fosters an environment for a decentralized economy is actually a big winner in that scenario. Right. Because, you know, we think in the US of a a government by the people for the people. Uh, And so if you have that kind of uh, we're going to be a a light touch central authority that will create an environment where we have the talent, where we have the hash power, you know, where we have the regulatory clarity, where we have uh, the uh, investment, the venture, like all of the things that foster those communities, those economies that could actually be really good and and bolster that central government, that central authority, maybe more so for the political class than the financial services industry. But uh, that, you know, getting back to the thermodynamics discussion, right, that there's decentrality that makes for a better environment for those that are leaders in that world. What do you think?
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, I think you bring up a really good point in that there's a global kind of competition amongst uh, nation states, right? We'll take the U.S. perspective. The U.S. perspective might be colored by what uh, what we see going on in China. So, if China bans crypto mining, um, it just, it's a it kind of sends a signal to the U.S. Of, of saying, like, well, let's let's go the let's play the other hand, and maybe it, sh- it starts to change a little bit of the perception of crypto as to to being, hey, this might be something that we need to. Uh, embrace and get our hands around particularly if if one of our uh, if a competitor on the on the the global stage is 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 making life harder uh, for crypto to exist there then maybe this is something this is our moment where we can steal the beat and uh and you know become a little more uh of crypto as opposed to clamping down and i think ultimately like the clamping down is—it's um, going to be an interesting outcome because if it is truly decentralized, it's almost impossible to shut down unless you—you know—unplug the elect- the electrical grill uh, grid in your country, uh, remove all connectivity to the internet, um, and really render it impossible to connect into to a blockchain. Um, so I think. It, if you attempt to crush it and then you fail in your attempt to crush it, it's actually worse than, than trying to crush it in the first place or allowing it to, to flourish and occur. It's like you don't want it. The emperor doesn't want to show that they have no clothes. So making an attempt on, on banning crypto outright, I, I think is a, it's a little bit of a gamble that you, you may reveal you have no clothes. That's a great point. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I think that plays out right i don't know if anyone bans it successfully i mean maybe the chinese can but so one potential downside though right is in a very restrictive like a non-permissive environment whatever a country sets up that is antithetical to a bitcoin environment uh you can make that barrier to access and entry very very high right so you can make it such that only someone who's got like you know satellite access and technical proficiency to you know run their own node and like Right now, part of the advantage that Bitcoin and, and really the whole ecosystem has is that that access barrier is lowering. And with, there's some downside to that, right? Because we're seeing, you know, the reason that it's getting easier is because platforms like Coinbase have so much reach into their addressable market. But it is getting easier for the average person to find a way to just download Cash App and, you know, get some Bitcoin and, you know, maybe move it out into a wallet that they self-custody or something. Um, and so being relegated into uh you know a technophile cypherpunk like just just the like fringe people can access it and use it i think that's like to the detriment of progress as well uh it doesn't kill it right but it's a
3: detriment but alec i think that's how that's how it all starts like uh again i'm i'm i I hold DeFi in, in really high promise i think there's this is it like this is what i've been waiting for this is what like uh uh, all my excitement about Ethereum and smart contracts and, and the possibility that that brings—it's so like early on. Uh, again, I, I mentioned ICOs. So, 2018 uh, Ethereum, all it really did was produce a platform for people to come out with ICOs. Um, yeah, I, I, bottles, models, and Lambos are, are cool, but like it's not—it's not fulfilling, and it wasn't anything that, that I really wanted to see the you know the, the promise that it offered. Uh, I think it all changed with with uh, CryptoKitties. It was a silly thing, like oh, CryptoKitties, like, but it actually was real and it built a community. And I think that sort of was like the first spark for me to see, okay, smart contracts, something as big is coming. And I think the the emergence of DeFi is real is that realization. Now, that being said, I've been very, very uh, um, promising um, on DeFi. The reality is, if you try to use DeFi today, there are, there is a barrier. There is a barrier. You need to you need to have a certain um, um, kind of knowledge base. Where I can't have my mom go on to uh, go into the world of DeFi and, and have any clue of, of what she's doing. So there is a there is a, a technical kind of barrier. But I think that flattens out over time, even. You know, Bitcoin early days. There was no, uh, there was no uh, wallet providers that you could uh, use third party like easy custom off the shelf solutions. But that kind of grew to the point that you mentioned now, where we have Cash App, we have Coinbase, has really uh, normalized the experience and made it a lot easier. I think you know we'll see that too with uh, with DeFi. So I think if there is a tech barrier or barriers of any sort, where you have kind of just the crypto enthusiasts that are the initial uh, participants, I think it, once the use case is proven that, this, the, that there's, there's value there, that changes and we, we see it becoming easier to use.
1: So that ease of use thing is cool. I, I'm generally in favor of that. But there is something to be said for uh, in crypto, part of the sovereignty is you have to take all the steps yourself. Right, and so if it's all done for you, like if, if all of a sudden that the you know cash app you know wraps your Bitcoin and then you know sends it to MetaMask in the background and and then stakes it into whatever, whatever that's cool, right? And that's going to make it easier for you know the next billion people to use it, but you lose some of that control along the way, right? You're not custodying along the way. You don't control those transactions. You're not initiating those UTXOs are you know attributed back to the central authority that is processing on your behalf. And so you're getting closer again to something that looks like just the crypto version of TriFi.
3: Yeah, no, you're right. It's a, it's an interesting question. You know, I started by saying like uh, Satoshi gave the, abil- the ability for people to be your own bank. You can hold your own asset. But then the, the reality is not everybody wants to be their own bank. Being your own bank is difficult. You could lose your keys. You could, you know, a myriad of things can, can go wrong. So, Uh, there's certain, certain people are like, no, I want somebody to do that for me on my behalf. And it's like, it's a trade-off because yeah, then you're looking more like centralized and, uh, you're, you're not, uh, acting as the individual, but not everybody wants to. And I think there's a, there's a, a way to kind of, uh, uh, make it such that you can approach crypto to the level of your comfort. You know, still to this day, like you could have a, a ledger device and hold all of your assets yourself. It's perfectly cool, like if that's what you want to do. Or I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong if you want to use uh, like a Coinbase or an exchange and just let let them uh, hold on to the assets on your behalf. I think there's different interests, there's different um, motivations, and as long as we have like a, a full spectrum. And we're not forcing anyone to one side or the other, but allowing people to interact as they're comfortable and as they're interested in. I think that's, to me, my perspective. Versus, like, I don't want to fo- just just because I might hold uh, you know some libertarian beliefs or beliefs that yeah, there's a benefit in doing it yourself doesn't mean I want to force everybody down that road. Like, you could go down the. It should be available there if it's your desire, but if you don't want that. You, you should be allowed, or you, you should have an option to to use uh, like a third party service providers and uh, come to the world as, as as to your level of comfort.
0: Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about adoption. Uh, I think you relatively recently came on board at Falcon X. Yes. What is your role there, and what are you guys hoping to achieve?
3: I joined Falcon in I think it was May of 2021 um super happy to have a an amazing team uh they put together uh some really really uh smart talented and, and bright people and similar to when i made the jump to genesis it's it feels like history repeating itself in that uh i'm i'm really happy to be with uh, a, a bright and uh and fantastic team i think a little differently though because i don't think uh, joining a crypto firm at this point is quite as risky as it was in 2015. I think we feel like crypto is here to stay. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the team there is focused on uh, you know solving the headache of, of trading and transaction transacting in in crypto. Um, it's very much a uh, it, it can be a um, a fractured market where you have exchanges and exchanges trade. In order to trade on an exchange, you need to fully fund. You can only trade what you have on deposit. Um, and that becomes kind of difficult for for participants who might want to chase prices at various different exchanges. There might be, a, you know, price could be uh, better at one exchange and then, you know, a few minutes later, the, the prices are, are better on, on a second exchange. And if you, if you don't have your assets deployed there ahead of time, you can't trade. So it becomes uh, like a fractured market. Um, and I think part of what, um, of what Falcon X can do is, uh, kind of aggregate the liquidity from various different sources. It could be exchanges. They could be other OTC desks, and allow, uh, counterparties to trade with, with Falcon X, uh, and simplify the headache of having the need to, you know, connect into, to, um, you know, a myriad of, of exchanges and controlling your deposits, what you have on, on that exchange, you can kind of clean up a a lot of that headache and just provide, uh, like one, one counterparty to trade with. And also just alleviate some, another headache of like a pre-funded trading. If you trade on a, uh, and you post-trade settle, I think that that is another kind of like, um, benefit and and headache that, that Falcon X does a really good job of of solving.
1: What's the company culture over there, right? Because you know, obviously they hired you, so they can't be that stuffy, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no,
3: no. The um so our our founder, Ragu, is an amazing guy. He's actually one of one of the uh, the best uh, CEOs that I've had the the pleasure of of working with. Um he comes from, uh, you know, Google background, Silicon Valley. He's a, uh, an engineer uh, by background and by heart. Um, and he's done an amazing job of, of starting from a uh, 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 background as an engineer and being able to understand financial markets. It's a kind of a difficult thing. Um, I, I almost think of it as like different cultures where we have the West Coast, uh, of the US they do a fantastic job on the technology side. I tend to think of like East Coast as like uh, we're really good at financial markets and actually in between Chicago they might actually be even better. They're they're what I think of traditionally as like more derivatives, more um kind yeah, more commodities. Like I in a sense it's like the East Coast we're playing checkers in Chicago. They're they're playing chess. They kind of play the game at a different level with options, with commodities and futures forwards and, you know, all of those financial products. So we actually have a nice combination of all three of these, uh, geographical areas, uh, at Falcon X. And of course we have a a global presence. It's not just the U S we have, uh, you know, great team in India. We have a team in, in Malta, and it's just a global kind of, uh, uh, culture and, and, and company, then uh, it's been been awesome to be a part of.
0: Yeah, and you guys were recently acquired by Novogratz.
3: That's actually my, my, my former company. Uh, that was Bico. That actually was was super cool. Um, so when I joined uh, Bico, they primarily were known as a uh, wallet provider, multi-sig. I uh, had a, the, the great experience of working with uh, Mike Belshi, the CEO there. He's another, another engineer, um, from, from origin and Mike did an amazing job starting with, uh, a technical company, uh, multi-sig wallet technology. That's, that was our, our first offering at, uh, at Bico. And in that, in that suite, it's like the, the user holds their keys, uh, to Alex's point, like, Hey, it's an experience where you want to hold your keys. That's, that's what the, 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 the software allowed for, it. but it allowed for it in 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 less than a single point of failure. Right, there was three keys. You need two of the three. You can actually set it up in in a myriad of ways, but the most the most traditional would be like a three keys, and you need two of the three keys to turn before there'd be a release of funds. Um, and we Mike realized that that worked for a great segment of of uh, customer base, but there was others out there that said, look, we don't have the, the the technical know-how. We don't have the personnel. We don't have the stomach to hold our keys at all. Can you come up with a solution where you hold all three keys? Uh, and out of that uh, was birthed Bico Trust, uh, South Dakota Trust. And that's exactly what they did. They held all three keys of the multi-sig um, configuration and they would handle the whole possession of keys. And it was wrapped in a custodian because that's that's the the appropriate sort of like regulatory entity to to provide that service. Um, So they had that already sort of in place by the time I joined. Um, And when I came on board, um, we grew the company to um, include more of a, of a lending de- initially was a lending desk and, and then additionally on top of that uh, trading platform. So that allowed uh, customers who, who wanted the full sort of service of saying, Hey, can you hold on to the keys for me? I don't want to do this. And then they might say, okay, Hey, I need, I want to sell this asset. Can, can you take care of that for me? Or I want to buy an asset. And then you just directly hold, hold it for me. So it became more of like a, of the, the service in of around, uh you know crypto which to alex was my point of like hey there's there's multiple ways to approach crypto i think all of them are valid and it's just really what fits your your risk profile so holding uh keys in cold storage and having it done by a third person uh third party that's probably anath- uh, anathema to to some of the the crypto anarchists but that is a, a, a viable and valuable service for other entr- other participants.
0: Yeah, one of the press releases I was reading about you actually said that in the same sentence. That's why I got confused. like yeah. Left Bitco and then it goes off talking about Bitco being sold to Galaxy. But yeah, how do you feel, because Bitco has obviously been a big player for a long time and we've had Jameson Lop on the show before. How do you feel about, like you just said, uh, Not might not be for everybody, but how is that business model going for them? In the institutional space, I guess.
3: Yeah, exactly. You got to know who your audience is. I think um, it's very, it's very important. Like if you go, if you're trying to start a business, right, you have to know what it is that you're doing. And for me, it's always been a pretty clear and easy way to, to differentiate is, are you going for retail or are you going for institutional? Um, and you kind of have to figure that out. It's, it's difficult to do either of those really well. It's almost impossible to, to try to do both at the same time. Um, in, in terms of like, yeah, uh, you know, I just had this interesting conversation with somebody who's more from an engineering background. Because I think institutional versus retail is very much like a financial markets way of looking at, at your customer base, Uh had this conversation with someone from more of a software engineering. It's like, what is it you want to be? Do you want to, you, are you going for a B2B play or are you going for a B2C? And I think that's a, a, a way like an, an analog from more of like a uh, software kind of perspective. It's the same kind of uh, demarcation. But, um, but so Bickle clearly is uh, plays in the institutional arena. Um, my, current company falcon x similarly were institutional focus and prior to that also genesis institutional focus so my whole career has sort of been on the, the institutional side of things um i haven't uh directly you know been involved with with more of the of the retail or the the b2c kind of play now that all being said i think O does a, an amazing job and uh I think the that was uh, verified by the fact that uh, uh, you know Galaxy, uh, another phenomenal company, saw the value proposition in Bico, and uh, we went down the road to to you know get get to a point where uh, we have a merger agreement and still pending close, um, but the the agreement was signed and you know at the time it was a one point two valuation on on the acquisition. So we were, I think we were the first unicorn in terms of, of actually being acquired versus, you know, uh, valuations. So we was super proud and, and, and happy to be to be part of that whole process. Jimmy, we've
1: talked a little bit about, and this might be a good direction to go towards closing, but um, I get the impression that you have, you know, mentored some people, you've obviously you know, spent a- enough time in the industry that you've seen some people come up and, and succeed in crypto. Uh, and so, you know, we've talked a little bit about like what that message is to folks, because it, there's there's zero people. Well, let's say there's very few people in crypto now that could have predicted it when they were in college, you know. But for the few that you know have been in school since it came out, right? So, you know, everyone here on this call could not have planned for it, it in their education or in their career path. Nothing, right? Uh, and yet, like I, you know, would argue, we're probably all pretty happy with how things have played out. So, you know, what do you say to people who are looking around who either think they know what they want to do or don't know what they want to do? Maybe they want to get into crypto. You know, maybe they shouldn't, who knows. But like, what's your outlook to, to the next generation?
3: Yeah, I think uh, if you're young in your career, I think that's a great opportunity to take a risk. Don't be afraid of risk. Don't be afraid to try something unconventional. Um, and kind of a theme that I've been harping on is like, you can mitigate that risk by making sure you do an assessment of the team that you're joining such that like, okay, the value, the the proposition that you guys are chasing, maybe it, maybe it's, we hope it succeeds. If it fails, then if you're, if you've chosen to surround yourself with good people, then you'll be similarly situated where you have to figure out the, the next, the next opportunity and the next venture, but don't be afraid to take a risk. Mitigate the risk by joining a good team.
0: And then if you can, try to do a side hustle as well where you get paid a salary but you know i guess you, c- you can't say that
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> how do you pick that team though just to follow up on that so
1: you say pick a good team that sounds that's good advice right but um if you don't have career experience how do you assess that because uh, you could just be succumbing to marketing or, or glitz or a fancy office or a boss that has an expensive car and n- none of those are predictors of success
3: yeah no it's true it's it's um uh, it's easy when you know you're on an interview and someone's uh, selling you the vision and it seems great and it you could you could easily like uh, uh, join a team that ends up being nothing like what was sold to you at the beginning. Um, so I'd say to the extent you can do 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 your due diligence. Um, don't just take the word of somebody, but try to find out what their background is, what their reputation is what they've done in the past. And to the extent you can, you can tap into uh, a network, you can, you can find out people's reputations. I mean, for instance, crypto is a small world. Uh, financial crypto is even, sm- you know, wall street is a small world, but you know, uh, kind of crypto wall street is even tinier. So um People's reputations are known and to the extent you can tap into a network and, and find out about somebody's uh, reputation or do your due diligence, you know, through other means. That's what I would say. It, 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 but you bring a good point. It's just, just on the basis of meeting somebody, they could be charismatic and they could sound you know amazing, but you know, down the road it, it, it was a terrible kind of team to join. Do your due diligence and always like anything, it is, it is a bit of a risk. It is a little bit of a trust that you think uh, yeah, the, the person is as they present themselves to be. But you can back that up with some due diligence.
0: And it's more fun as well in this market.
3: That's right. I mean, look, you can't, you, you can't, you can't eliminate all risk entirely, right? Because then you're, there would be no upside if you did. In order to get upside, you have to assume some risk.
0: Interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff, Jimmy. I think that's a lot of really good career advice, really good uh, crypto advice. No legal advice, as always. have to say that. <laughs> well, listen, yeah, we should probably close it down pretty soon. Uh, any other thoughts? Anything we missed here? Uh, any other links? Places where our listeners can find you?
3: Yeah, no, I just uh, I, I just want to take the, the opportunity because... Uh, there's a whole like subculture to crypto, which is like you know legal crypto, and you know, I think appropriately we we stay in the background. But we're not front and center, um, and I think that's appropriate. Uh, but now that I have an opportunity to kind of uh, uh, have a floor, I just I just want to uh, to shout out like some of the really talented attorneys that I've worked with through through my my years, and just to kind of give them a little spotlight, like and jokingly i think you know i mentioned crypto kitties i think is was, was a, a a cool project uh, i would and we talked a little about hey jimmy what if you did a defi protocol what would you do well i don't know maybe maybe i'll put it this way if i ever did a, a an nft i think i'd come out with legal beagles and it'd be like avatars representing the, the 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 lawyers in the industry probably no one would buy them maybe other than our our you know our moms that are proud of us um, but just if I can just say real quick, lawyers I've worked with, Andrew Sullivan at Genesis, Matt Kitta, Lisa Lefevre, uh, Deb DeJou at Bico. Uh, my team at, at Falcon is amazing, Pervy, uh, Manihar, uh Dayani, Duarte, uh, Barbara Magalesh, and lawyers that I, I haven't worked with, but I've, I, I greatly admire, Mark Borean at, at uh, DYDX, Rebecca uh, Reddick at Ave, Marvin Amori at Uniswap, Georgia Quinn at Anchorage, all talented people, all are um, making things, uh, making this whole crypto thing work from the the mostly under, you know, not seen behind the scenes uh, legal work.
0: Nice, man. Very cool. Where can our listeners find out more about your contact with what you're doing at Falcon X?
3: Yeah, uh, please uh, investigate Falcon X. You can go on our website. We just rebranded we did a beautiful job i have a nice beautiful website falconx.io and i actually think we we also are are taking over falconx.com so we've graduated out of just the the .io although i have to say i i kind of like the .io a little better than the than the .com but i think we'll we'll be equally available i'll let the the um i'll let the audience decide whether they want to use the io or the or the .com that could be there that could be their choice. <laughs> I think I know which one Alec
1: is, is, is would be using. I'm just wondering who had FalconX.com before and how much he paid for that.
3: Uh that I, I can't say.
1: <laughs> Better not answer. <laughs> I think we know famously that, uh, what's his face, Michael Saylor sold Alarm.com for some like $30 million uh, to the company that's now Alarm.com, so... If you got a good TL top-level domain,
2: yeah, he he bought the first real-world NFTs before real-world NFTs.
0: Yep, mm-hmm. first digital assets. He was ahead of his time for sure, but came late. Came late to Bitcoin, interestingly. In due time. In due time. In due time, he did come around to it, though.
1: Matthew, no one's late. Come on. <laughs> That's, true.
0: <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> we're all on. Try to make myself feel better about that, since he's uh, balling <laughs> at everything else, but. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, that's true. No one's late to Bitcoin.
3: I guess we, we, we talk about uh, price and being late. I thought for the longest time that I was the kiss of death of, of Bitcoin because you know when, when I was at Genesis, I maintained the role of like a chief compliance officer and GC. So we're running a compliance program. You know, We're regulated by FINRA and the SEC. So I made this decision where I was like, you know what, in order to remain independent, I'm not going to personally invest in Bitcoin. And of course, it uh, like I mentioned when I joined, it was 200. It ran up to like 20k, and I think I finally broke down on my stance, and I was like, ah, you know what? Maybe maybe it's okay if I if I you know have a a little token investment, and I ended up making my investment. I think it was like 18k. So then when. When the market collapsed and it's like back down, to, I was like, "I am the kiss of death." <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad that we're we're north of, of my of my uh, my initial pr- price marker.
0: Token investment like outside of Bitcoin you, into an altcoin. You're saying
3: no, no. I mean a token investment as in like, hey, I need to to understand like ah, okay, uh, it, more it, of, it, a, a, of, up, like, up. of a of like as a user like the user experience like <laughs> let me buy like a, a nominal amount of of, of Bitcoin. Because
0: if it was an altcoin, you'd have a much quicker explosion to the downside
3: Uh, yeah exactly
0: so it's it's not all bad and and that bitcoin for sure i hope you still got it so uh that's good i love it we always run these outros very long but uh listen jimmy thank you so much man really enjoyed it yeah thank you yeah very very interesting stuff we'll link to all that in the show notes yeah my bengals are going to the super bowl uh the week this is going to be aired so who day go bengals first time in 33 years I don't care if anybody does want to hear me talk about that, but it's pretty incredible. Mm.
1: For, for the the four to six crypto voices slash Bengals fan listeners, I think you've hit an there.
0: That Venn diagram is very small. <laughs> very small. But, but you know, uh,
3: Is it smaller than the list of uh, potential buyers of Legal Beagle NFT?
0: <laughs> <laughs> we could run some tests. We'll see. Yes. Hey, thank you, Jimmy.
3: Pleasure. It was great talking to you guys. Uh, and I'd love to do it again if you, if you find it uh, interesting.
0: All right. Sounds great, Jimmy. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you much, man. who day.